Okay, now jumping into part two, if I can make this transition, into uh, helping without hurting, four-part August series, and I have the privilege of carrying all four parts of this series. So today is part two, and I want to begin with what I believe was one of the most rewarding experiences that Chris, my wife, and I had all summer. One of the most rewarding experiences, and it occurred here in our backyard. There, uh, I'm doing a preaching workshop there. It was a multi-day preaching workshop at my home for international pastors and church leaders. Two of the guys were from the Czech Republic. One of them was from Finland. One of them was from Poland. And one of them was from Cambodia. And we anchored at my house, Chris and I, our house, uh, for several days, uh, gathered for dinner on Thursday night, and then all day Friday workshop, all day Saturday workshop, wrapped up after lunch on Sunday, and some of the guys stayed on till uh, Monday morning. It wasn't like being in a class. It was like being at camp together. It was like being at a retreat, but the retreat center just happened to be our home. And a lot of the sessions we did outside just to enjoy the incredible Michigan uh, summer, we found these days incredibly rewarding, incredibly fulfilling, and incredibly draining. The beauty of the event is that we had nine consecutive meals together. The drain of the event is that we had nine consecutive meals together. Three of the guys stayed in our house. Two of them stayed with friends that lived down the street from us. The beauty of the event is that we had a house full of people. The drain of the event is that we had overnight guests for five nights in a row. I was so eager for them to arrive. <laughs> I was so willing to see them leave. It was, at the same time, rewarding and fulfilling and draining. What we're talking about here is something uh, for this message I just want to call the power of proximity. The power of proximity. And by the power of proximity, I mean this, that it is likely that the greatest and impact and influence that will come from your life is probably in a relationship, which can involve time, and that can be draining. At the same time, some of your greatest life influence and impact can be an outlay of energy and time and care that is simultaneously incredibly rewarding and yet draining at the same time. And this dynamic of what I'm calling the power of proximity is exactly what I believe we find in the story of a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. The mother-in-law's name is Naomi. Daughter-in-law's name is Ruth. Now, we looked at this story last week, and today I want to kind of drill down deeper into it to see some things that we didn't notice last week. And so uh, the story occurs about a thousand years before the time of Jesus. And just a map here to show uh, uh, proximity. Israel's on the left. Moab is to the right across the Jordan River. That little dot there is about where the city of, uh, the city, the village of Bethlehem was. Bethlehem is the home of Naomi in Israel. She's got a husband, Elimelech, and they've got two adult sons. There is a famine in Israel. There's not enough food. They leave the country. They cross the Jordan River, and they go to the land of Moab. Her two adult sons, 
get married to Moabite women, women from Moab. And then tragedy strikes the family. In a, the the storyline turns, her husband dies, Naomi, her husband Elimelech dies, and then her two sons-in-law die, leaving three widows, the mother-in-law and two daughters-in-law, and then one of the daughters-in-law heads back to her own family. So now you have Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who return to Israel. This is a story of extreme tragedy, and this is a story of desperate poverty. Extreme tragedy, desperate poverty, and we're gonna ask the question, what does Ruth need, the daughter-in-law? Now, I know, I know you indulge me. You look at that map and you go, Jeff, we so much appreciate your passion to acquaint us with the geography of the ancient Near East. But is this really necessary? The answer is yes. And the reason the geography is necessary is that it comes up in the story over and over and over and over again. What keeps surfacing in the story is Ruth's foreignness. So, the end of Ruth chapter one, when Ruth and Naomi first come back to town, Bethlehem, and Naomi has been gone for over a decade, the situation is described like this. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, uh, her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem uh, as the barley harvest was beginning. The way that Ruth is described here, her foreignness is highlighted. Ruth, she's not from here. Uh, she's from Moab. Now, uh, if you were with us last week, you know what happens. Ruth comes to her mother-in-law and says, uh, please, uh, can I have permission to leave the house, go out to the fields outside of town, and maybe I can find some generous and gracious landowner who will let me follow along behind the harvesters and like pick up stalks of grain that get dropped along the way. There's a term for this. It begins with a G. Does anyone remember this from last week? It's called, it's called gleaning and out into the field she goes. And so she happens to be in a field of a guy by the name of Boaz. Boaz shows up in his field, calls over his manager, his overseer, goes, hey, who's the girl? Look at the way the overseer describes her. Again, uh, chapter two, verse six. The overseer replied, she is the, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Over and over and over in the story, Ruth's foreignness is highlighted. If we were to show this in a graphic image, it would look like this. Ruth is on the outside looking in. And the question is, what does Ruth need? Well, she probably needs, I mean, she, she, they're hungry. She needs to find, pick up grain and make bread for her and her mother-in-law. Yeah, what else does Ruth need? In this story, we're going to talk about the power of proximity, the power of relationship. And this isn't just about Ruth, and it's not just about Naomi. This is about us. This is about you. Because I think in your heart of hearts, Many of you would say, Jeff, I want my life to count. I want my life to count. I want to make a difference in this life. Your greatest impact and opportunity and influence, my friends, will probably come from relationships. And we know how wonderful relationships are. Relationships can be messy. It can be difficult. They can be challenging, they can be draining, particularly a relationship with someone like Ruth, who has experienced some, let's just call them disadvantages. Ruth comes from a disadvantaged 
background. What does she need? Let's dive into this story. This isn't just about her. This is about us. It's about the power of proximity through our lives. Uh, split the story up into three separate conversations. Conversation number one, I've just called the field. Conversation number one, the field. Meet Ruth in the field. Remember the backstory. What's she there to do? She is there to pick up grain so that she and her mother-in-law will have something to eat. That's true. But what does Ruth need? She lost her husband. She lost her father-in-law. She lost her brother-in-law. She relocated to a place she's never been to before. She speaks with an accent. She's wandered out into some random field hoping to find a gracious, giving landowner who will let her, at least for the morning, pick up the scraps in his field. I want to suggest that Ruth's dilemma, her poverty, isn't only financial. It's relational and it's emotional. Ruth's challenge isn't just a money problem. It's a relational problem. It's an emotional challenge. And this is when Boaz the landowner calls her over, and in the last part of verse 8, we read these words. We looked at this last week briefly. He says to her, stay here with the women who work for me. I want you to stick with my girls. He could have said, listen, you're welcome to be in the field this morning. Every stalk of grain you pick up takes away from my bottom line, so you're welcome to be here today. Tomorrow you need to find a different field. When he says, stay with my girls, stay with the women who work for me, what he's saying is, you're welcome to come back tomorrow and the next day and the next day. He's inviting her into his circle. She's on the outside looking in. He's inviting her into his circle. And then he says, by the way, I've told my guys not to lay a hand on you. It'll be safe for you here. They won't drive you away. Hey, you get thirsty? Water jars are right over there. Feel free to go get a drink whenever you need a drink. And what she does is she just falls down on her knees. She cannot believe the generosity of spirit of Boaz. Uh, what she says, it appears in verse 10. She says, at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you would notice me? A, a foreigner. Her foreign status is mentioned again and again and again. Why would you take notice of me? A foreigner. Lunchtime rolls around, and they're like having a crew meal with Boaz and his harvesters. Ruth's sitting over there somewhere. He calls to her and says, join us for lunch. Verse 14, at Moaz, Boaz said to her, hey, come over here. Come over here, have some bread, and dip it into the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some, and had some left over. How long had it been since this sister had leftovers? Is there not something in this story kind of touches you at a deep space? Is there not something in the story that like, I don't know, maybe you had a season in life when you were on the outside looking in, maybe you're there today. And just this thing Boaz does where he says, listen, three expressions. 
walk with us, sit with us, eat with us. Show up tomorrow, the next day, the next day, I want you to work with us, I want you to walk with us, I want you to sit with us, I want you to eat with us. See, because when the story opens, what you have is, this is the Boaz circle. His harvesters, his people, Ruth is somewhere out here. And what he's doing is he's inviting her to become part of his circle. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And if I can make a distinction here, he could have done something for Ruth. And instead, he does something with Ruth. A kind, good-hearted person, he could have simply said, listen, listen, tomorrow morning, you show up at the edge of our field, uh, there'll be a bag of bread waiting for you there. You can come pick it up and leave, just don't get in the way. He does something far more powerful. He invites her into his circle. It's not simply what he does for Ruth, it's what he does with Ruth. And those powerful expressions, again, what he says is, walk with us, sit with us, eat with us, because understand something, the nature of Ruth's poverty it's not just a financial challenge, it's a financial, relational, emotional challenge. And he's inviting her. What I think, what does Ruth need in the field? I think she needs people. And she's invited in. Powerful, powerful story. Why is this important for us? It's important for us because I believe that Christians, as a species, excel at doing things for people. Particularly people who have happened upon disadvantages in life, whether self-inflicted or otherwise. And this skill of doing things with people is just, is just radically different. It's just radically, radically different. So uh, let me describe the difference in moving to uh, conversation number two. Conversation one is a feel. Conversation two is, two is the shelter. The shelter. And by this I mean homeless shelter. Now, this story comes to us by the guy Brian Fickert, who wrote that book, When Helping Hurts. And he talks about the powerful difference between doing something for someone and doing something with someone where we're actually saying, walk with me, sit with me, eat with me. And the illustration that he uses, if you get the book, When Helping Hurts, you'd find this on page 106. Powerful story. Uh, Brian Fickert and his wife, they lived in Connecticut. And he and his wife started to organize people in their church to go to a homeless shelter one night a month to serve food at the homeless shelter. And this Christian men's homeless shelter, Fickert describes it as a lot of the guys had some kind of event or trauma, a job loss, uh, their marriage dissolved, somebody died, and then add on top of that maybe drug, alcohol abuse, bottom falls out, they're spiraling. And so the goal of the homeless shelter, uh, particularly in a Connecticut winter, get these guys off the street into a shelter where they had food, where they had shelter, but also where they had a group of counselors who could help reverse this downward cycle and move these men, this is Fickert's term, toward rehabilitation. So he and his wife get a group from church and once a month they go and they serve food at the men's homeless shelter. And Fickert goes, we did everything for them. We didn't ask them to do anything and to help in any way. We organized the menu, we bought the food, we cooked the food, we served the food, and we cleaned up after they were done. 
He said, we did everything but spoon feed them the meal. Many of these people were on their way to getting their heads back together, lives back together, and said, we didn't have to do anything. So Fickert does this. He says, wouldn't it have been better if we had involved these men at every level of the process? If we had sat down with them and had them help us select the menu? If we had gone grocery shopping with them? If we had involved them in cooking the meal? If we had been on the same side of the table in serving the meal and had them clean up with us after the meal. So as he finishes this illustration, this is a quote from Fickert. This is what he says. He says, we could have done supper with the men working and eating side by side rather than getting, giving supper to the men. And what he's saying here is that there is a relational component, the power of proximity, and a lot of times someone's personal growth emerging from a desperate situation will inquire the power of proximity where someone says, walk with us, sit with us, eat with us. And he looked back and said, we like, we like totally missed it. He said, by the way, if we had done this with the men at every level, it would have reduced their sense, their own sense of superiority and the guy's sense of inferiority, where you just recognize we're doing this together, and by the way, all of us are messed up. We just happen to be messed up in different ways. But everybody's broken. Everybody's messed up. We'll do this with you. Fickert's rule number one, never do for people what they can do for themselves. Never do for people what they can do for themselves. So this with versus for. You go, Jeff, 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 you gotta be kidding me, man. I mean, it's just so inefficient. Seriously, sitting with men at a homeless shelter, doing menu planning, taking them shopping, cooking with them, it's just not fast, it's just not quick. Exactly. And because it can be inefficient and slow and tedious, that's what shapes the fact that we're far more likely to do something for people than we are with people. So there's a quote in his book, When Helping Hurts, that walloped me because I know he's right. Two parts to the quote. Part one, finding armies of people to volunteer one Saturday per year to paint dilapidated houses is easy. One Saturday a year, let's go paint dilapidated houses. Finding our people, easy. You ready for the next part of the quote? Are you sure? Here we go. Finding people to love the people day in and day out who live in those houses is extremely difficult. Ouch, and all God's people said, crap. <laughs> I go, he's right. He's right. Doing a work project, doing something for people. One day, easy, easy, easy. Oh, my goodness. Walking with someone, entering their world. It's just hard. It's long. It's tedious. It's messy. It's complicated. Who in the world would do that? Who in the world would enter a complicated mess, walk with someone long-term, and actually enter their world? Who would do that? He did. This is the story of the Christ. The God of the universe camps out here. 
to walk with us and sit with us and eat with us. Four biographies of Jesus in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, called the four Gospels. In John's Gospel, John calls Jesus the Word, and this is the way he described this event. He says, John 1, chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and made his... The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You see, when you reach into a situation, it's a complicated situation. You go, this is a complicated mess. Just remember, Jesus stepped into our complicated mess. The word became flesh and camped out among us. He walked with us. He sat with us. He ate with us. I know, for some of you, this is just a reminder. But some of you, this is brand new information. And this is so powerful and it's so important. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he says this sentence about what he is about. He called himself the Son of Man, and Jesus said this. He says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's like, I am on a search and rescue mission. He enters our world. I will walk with you, sit with you eat with you. That is on the tail end, my friends, of going to be the guest of a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus, and people who see this flip out. He has gone to be the guest of a tax collector, the guest of a sinner, and Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's what I'm about. I am on a search and rescue mission. Some of you have felt much of your life, and maybe in this moment, nobody sees you. Nobody notices you. No one cares about you. You could disappear and no one would know and no one would care. In the Christ, you find someone who knows and someone who cares. He entered our complicated mess to know us and to be known by us. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He walked with us. He sat with us. He ate with us. This is the mark of the Jesus. And this is to be the mark of the Jesus people who walk with people. And I do not in any way want to diminish how long and challenging and complicated this can be with someone whose life is incredibly complex. So this is my advice to you. If you want to change the world, should probably invite some friends. If you want to change the world, you should probably invite some friends. Conversation number three, the circle. When I talk about the circle here, what I'm talking about is building a circle around a specific deep human need. I just don't mean inviting someone into your friend group. I mean creating a circle that doesn't exist around an intense human need. What I mean is this. Creating a circle around an intense human need. What I'm saying is this. Uh, if you want to change the world, you should probably invite some friends. Uh, two stories from last week, two conversations last week. Conversation number one last week had to do with uh, incarceration. 
uh, guy on our staff, his name is Doug Redford. Uh, Doug Redford serves at our uh, Cascade campus, uh, primarily in uh, men's ministry, among some other things. But back in the day, Doug worked for an organization called Prison Fellowship. Now, prison fellowship, in addition to going like into a prison and doing uh, like uh, Bible studies for men and women who are incarcerated, they also assist people with re-entry. That is, when you are released from incarceration and try to move back in to be a citizen in society, you, you, you got to find work, which can be complicated, uh, entering uh, family relationships, possibility there might be some addictive patterns in the past. Things are not always psychologically well upon exit from prison. And so in my conversation with Doug last week, he's like saying, this is what prison fellowship would do. They would attempt to form a re-entry team around the needs of that person that weren't just vocational, it's vocational, emotional, relational, psychological. Doug's evaluation was, those needs can be so intense, trying to do it one-on-one -on -one can be overwhelming. Create a circle. Create a circle that tries to help that person re-enter. In a back-and-forth email with Doug at the end of the week, Doug wrote this. He said, uh, this process, a re-entry, uh, it's tedious, challenging, often disappointing work. It can be a slog. That's why a, that's why a team is necessary because it can be overwhelming. You actually create a circle around an intense human need. What am I saying here? What I'm saying is if you want to change the world, you might want to invite some friends. That was one conversation from last week. Second conversation from last week, a uh, guy by the name of Jamie, his wife is Becky, uh, Ada Bible Church attender, uh, attenders, uh, some people in their neighborhood decided to band together to host a refugee family from Afghanistan that arrived two years ago. We're talking like somewhere between, uh, I think it was like eight and 10 families said, we will help host this family as they move to America. So here they are, they all meet at the Gerald Ford Airport as this family from Afghanistan uh, climbs off the plane. Mom, dad, four kids, and expecting number five. Husband had a medical issue, uh, had been shot in the hand by the Taliban. He's gonna need to get a job working with his hands. And so he's, he's gotta get his you know, hand uh, back up and running, rehabilitated. And so uh, what they did, what that neighborhood did was they formed, and I think two or three of the couples are probably families from, from your home church, Ada Bible Church. Uh, they created a circle around that deep human need. And so eight to 10 couples, it's kinda like, and then some of their teenage kids. It's kinda like, eight to 10, isn't that kinda overkill? Jamie, that's what we thought, and it wasn't overkill. It was like, at some points, it was like all hands on deck. Now, let me give you the makeup of some people in the group and how the people in the group merged with some of the needs of that family. Number one, there was a, a nurse, at least one nurse in the group. And the husband needed some medical attention. Can anyone say pediatrician? Like four kids, another kid on the way. So the nursing help was huge. Two of the people were school teachers, educators, who could help evaluate the level that the kids were at, who needed ongoing tutoring. So two educators in the group, and they threw down on the educational front, and this is the most beautiful part. One of the individuals in the neighborhood that helped with this uh, uh, group to help this couple get on their feet, vocationally, an immigration attorney. Literally drove with them through to, to Detroit, walked them through the process of the whole residency green card thing, Two years ago, some of those people are still involved 
on a day-to-day basis, the simple stuff, we will, I mean, just imagine landing from Afghanistan. You don't speak English. You don't have a driver's license. You've never been here before. Uh, and they actually formed a team around that, in te- a circle. They built a circle around that human need. All I'm saying is this. Sometimes, if you want to change the world, you better invite some friends. You create a circle around that human need. Now, here's a question. Now, Jeff, you expect an entire church family to do that? No. No, I, I, don't, I don't expect 100% of us to do that. In fact, if 90% of us looked at that, create a circle around a human need and say, yeah, not for me. And by the way, you probably have to be called to it. If 90% of you said not for me and 10% said, yes, that's for me, and I think I know some people in my friends group that I would invite in, I'm telling you, look at me, 10% of this church family doing that would reframe the outreach of Ada Bible Church. It, it doesn't take all of us to move the needle on that. Ten per, one in 10, forming a circle around a deep human need could move the needle for us in outreach. But having said that, I think every single growing Christian has the ability to invite somebody into their life and say, listen, I'll walk with you, I'll sit with you, I'll eat with you. I didn't say perfect Christian. I didn't even say fully mature Christian. I just mean growing believer. You're on the path and you're moving forward and you're growing. Could invite somebody in. This story with Ruth Naomi happens a thousand years or so before the time of Jesus. You get to the time of Jesus, and then right after Jesus, after the crucifixion and resurrection, there is a pastor, teacher, by the name of the Apostle Paul, and he's traveling throughout the Roman Empire, starting new Jesus groups, communities of Jesus followers. And one of the towns he goes to, it's in Greece, and it's called Thessalonica, and later he writes a letter back to them, 1 Thessalonians, and there's this Verse in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul is writing back to them, reflecting on his time in their city, it just moves me in a deep space. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes this. He says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. You know what Paul's saying there? He says, when we were in Thessalonica, we walked with you, we sat with you, we ate with you. Paul, what did you bring when you arrived in the city of Thessalonica in Macedonia? We brought the gospel of God. Anything else? Yeah, we brought us. (laughs) We were delighted. We were thrilled. We were pleased not only to give you the message of the crucified, resurrected Jesus. We also gave you us. We sat with you. We walked with you. We sat with you. We ate with you. So uh, I don't have a clue who you should be inviting into your world or whose world you should step into. I don't have a clue. I do know that if you don't know and if you ask God to reveal someone to you, I think that's the kind of prayer God might be pleased to answer. And so, I'm going to ask something from you. 30 days. 30 consecutive days of offering a two-sentence prayer. Something as simple as, gracious God, 
would you please put someone on my mind that I could invite into my world to walk with, sit with, and eat with? Someone whose life could greatly benefit from us walking together. Gracious God, please identify someone in my orbit who I could extend my life to, not <laughs> to give my life, to share my life with. And I don't have a clue what this means for you. But it's someone you can say, hey, walk with me, sit with me, eat with me. 30 days. I think it's the kind of prayer our gracious God might be pleased to answer. I think he could, I think you could think of someone and think, I don't know, I, I think that was an impression from God. If you grew up without a dad, you never knew your dad, never saw your dad, and now you are a dad, there's a possibility that you could think one day, I'm not sure I know how to be a dad. I would like to suggest that learning the art of fatherhood, the best shot you have is by hanging out with someone who's a solid dad. But you kind of need an invitation. Someone to say, hey, walk with us, sit with us, eat with us. If you grew up in a family where your mom and dad didn't fight fair and didn't make up, you might be heading toward marriage, you think, and it paralyzes you. It scares you to death because you never had a model of how to actually get along. The best thing I can advise is for you to attach yourself to a couple that know how to fight fair and make up fast. <laughs> if you never heard the words, I'm sorry, will you forgive me in your home? Just observing a marriage where Someone goes, man, I so blew it last week. And uh, I had to say, I apologize, I messed, you know. Uh, the best way to learn about healthy marriage is hanging out, not with a perfect marriage, with a healthier marriage where people fight fair and make up. But you kind of have to be invited in. Sit with us, walk with us, sit with us, eat with us. I mean, if you pray that prayer for 30 days, Lord, who could I invite into my world? You have no idea who this might be. It, it could be an after-school program. Yes, it could be sitting with a third grader, helping them on their reading skills every Thursday afternoon. It could be massive project of neighborhood development where you definitely want to invite some friends. It could be that re-entry thing with an inmate. I don't know what this means. I just know. I know that the greatest impact and influence in your life will come from a relationship. The greatest impact and influence will come from walking with someone for a considerable period of time. It's the power, it's the power of relationship, it's the power of proximity. And it's these environments that for some reason our creator does his best work when we walk with each other. Boaz invites Ruth to sit with the crew for lunch and to do it again and to do it again and to do it again. It's simple, it's powerful, and there's nothing like it in the world. It's the power of proximity. Let me ask you to stand here at Cascade and at our other campuses. If you actually take me up on that, 
Okay, 30 consecutive days. Lord, please open my mind. Okay, begin right now in this prayer right now. Make this day number one. (laughs) Gracious God, open our eyes. Open our eyes to the world around us, to the needs around us. We thank you that we have been able to absorb and explore this rich story together. Now use it to mold us and to shape us and to move us to become the people that you created us to be. We ask this in the name of Jesus who made his dwelling among us. Amen. We'll see you next week.